Hello, good afternoon. <clears throat> How was lunch? Quiet? <clears throat> fragrant. Fragrant. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. What kind of the, the citrus trees are blooming on the patio. Oh, wow. It's very fragrant. I'm going to go out and sniff them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. the grapefruit trees are fabulous. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I don't know. No miracles, no soul. Are you sure you want to go on? <laughs> but you are unique, special. And you are part of something much bigger than you might have thought. So These two things that we've examined, causality, and then this reflective self-examination, they're, they're both, you don't see any inconsistencies in those, do you? No. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> So, <clears throat> let's go on. The Buddha, you'll recall, said that suffering was the result of craving, and craving is the result of ignorance and, and delusion. Um, he identified three characteristics of human existence that we are ignorant of, and it is this ignorance that is the, uh, is the cause, is, is the reason why we experience craving and suffering. And um, I don't know that that's self-evident, I think we'll need to talk about that a bit. But those three characteristics are impermanence, dissatisfaction and no self. The, the delusion that results from that ignorance is the belief that we are a separate entity, a self, in a world of other separate entities and that our happiness or unhappiness depends on our interaction with that world of other entities. That's the delusion. And it, it's understanding these three facts here that will overcome that delusion. And so that's, that makes these three characteristics very important. Impermanence. Impermanence refers to the fact that all conditioned things are in a constant state of flux. 
This is something we saw earlier when we were talking about dependent and rising, right? In reality, there are no things at all. Not even temporarily existing things that briefly come into existence and then pass away. That's a pretty radical statement. It certainly seems that we live in a world of things. Ultimately, there is only flux. So, how do we, how, how can we understand this? It appears like this cup is a thing. It came into existence at some point. <clears throat> it became this cup. Uh, it was a manufacturing process. It was glazed and at some point, there would be some point in time where we would say, okay, that's the cup. It's there. And it's still here. Amazingly enough, in this environment, it doesn't even have a chip in it yet. <laughs> and I think we're all pretty sure it won't last forever. It could last a long, long time, but it won't last forever. I mean, if nothing else, when the when the sun explodes and expands and incinerates the earth, this cup will <laughs> be reduced to its components all at the same time. You have the word, the the adjective conditioned. Yes. All conditioned things are in a constant state of flux. Would you, would you remind me again yeah. why that all adjective are, is there? All things that are due to causes and conditions. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. And at, the, at least so far, we can't seem to find anything that's not due to causes right. and conditions, right? Okay. So. Um, so that, that statement is just uh, are in a constant state of flux. Um, on the one hand, this things like this seems to be like a thing. It seems like it came into existence at some point, and it may exist only temporarily. But it, it, between when it came into existence and when it goes out again. It, it seems to be a real thing, right? So now we're starting to, to really challenge our normal way of, of viewing things. But somehow there is only flux. So what makes this a thing? You perceive it as that. Yes, I perceive it as such. Is there anything else that makes it a thing? There's some general agreement among other people. A lot that, of other people would that, that, perceive it as a thing. That thing kind of means the same thing that right. you think it means. Right. Okay. Yeah, perceive it as, as a thing. 
All things that don't exist are perceiving other things that don't exist. What's that? <laughs> All things that don't exist are perceiving other things that don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, no, we didn't say they don't exist. I mean, you, you exist. I exist. And this cup exists. We're just not the things that we think we are. It seems like you're defining, you're defining things as the state of flux, right? Is that what you're doing? <coughs> well, I'm not, not really. What we're saying is, uh, if what I'm really saying is, we're defining, we're redefining flux as things. Isn't that the same? Hmm? Isn't that the same? Well, okay, in terms of defining, yeah. We're... we're we're creating a definition of our mind of things. We have a different definition in our mind of flux. And so what we're doing is saying, this isn't flux, this is a thing. And what this is saying is, no, it's not a thing, it's really only flux. In other words, things and flux are not different from each other. I'm just looking at the first two sentences, I'm saying all conditioned things are in a constant state of flux, but then if there are no things at all, then how can you even make that first statement? I, I don't know. In reality, there are no things at all. Yeah. So Not even temporarily existing things. Right, so then why? how can you make a statement about things if there are no things? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just... <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we're making a statement, of it. that's why it's in quotes. We're making yeah. a statement about something that we call things, an oh, experience, okay. a phenomenon. All right. There's a phenomenon that we call things. Okay. And what this statement is saying is that we think that things oh, are one kind of phenomenon and okay. flux is another kind of phenomenon. What this is saying is that they're really, e even those things <laughs> that we call things are really flux. Okay. Could you define flux? Change. Change. Just pure change. So, this doesn't look like it's changing. Do you think, do you think it is changing? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it's changing? Well, little, little um, atoms and molecules are getting worn off of it by its contact with the the, with surfaces, with other seeming things. <laughs> yep, that's true. Absolutely. It might look like it's the same, but if we look closely enough, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's gradually wearing away. That's true. Yes? If I, if I really pay attention to the moment, and I feel each moment being new, then it's changing in that way, that it's a new cup every moment. Yeah. What if you look at it really, really closely with a magnifying glass, a super magnifying glass, what would you see? A bunch of holes filled with bacteria that you don't want to know about. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes? It's made up of uh, atoms that have space in them and are, things are moving, electrons. And This is something that we know. I don't know how the Buddha knew this, but if we could go in close enough, what we'd see is 99.9% .9 
empty space with something going on that looks like atoms, looks like electrons and protons and neutrons. But even when we look, if we look even closer at those things, they they stop being things too. Electrons, you know, in, in, in your high school science book, electrons look like little BBs that circled around other little BBs. But is that really what you see if you examine closely enough? You don't. More like events order. Yeah. Well, depending on how you look at them. If you, if you look for particles, you'll find particles, but if you look for waves, you'll find waves. If you look for events, you'll find events. If you look for force fields, you'll find force fields. Um, really, looked at in a particular way, all, all this cup is a, is a bunch of constantly changing force fields, interacting with each other. And, but the point is, the closer we look, the more that we would see just change. So I, I don't know how the Buddha knew that. But for sure, what he did understand is that, that this isn't the way it appears to be. That there's something else going on. And the only reason that it, that it appears like a thing is because we don't look closely enough. The more closely we look, the less it is a thing. As a matter of fact, let's, say, let's just... Zoom on into that level where all we see is atoms. And at that level, can you, you know, look at this with your microscope eyes. Can you tell me where the cup ends and the rest of the world begins? No. As a matter of fact, some of the atoms that some of the time are part of the cup molecules disappear and they get replaced by other atoms. Like this, is, uh, this cup is existing in a sea of oxygen and the oxygen atoms, they don't just stay where they're put. They're all the time leaving and, and as soon as one leaves, you know, the rest of the molecule latches onto another one out of the air and rips it off and makes it a part of itself. But, there really, there really isn't a boundary. So the boundary comes from our perception, our mind. Yeah. It's like everything is moving. Hmm? It's like everything is moving. Everything is moving. Yeah, okay. everything is moving. Yeah. Because of the kinds of sense organs we have, well, that determines the kind of instruments, scientific instruments we develop. And so, initially in our investigation of this, we find a big thing called a cup is made up of little things called molecules and atoms is made up of littler things called electrons and protons and neutrons made up of literal, littler things called quarks and stuff like that. But that's only because we have a particular kind of sensory apparatus and we design our equipment to enhance that sensory apparatus. But along the way though, we've, we've learned that we could look at things differently. And this can be looked at from the point of view of electromagnetic radiation as radiation. And so what this is, is it's just, it, it's actually a place where 
electromagnetic radiation interacts with each other in such a way that it stands out from the background. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I just want it to hold my tea. That's right, and it will. It'll, that's the wonderful thing about it. it. It will hold your tea. But then the downside of that is that if you drop it, it won't hold your tea anymore, and if you were very fond of this cup, or if you were desperately wanting a cup of tea, you'd be unhappy. That's where the problem comes. And this takes us back to we feel like I am a person that I will only be happy if I get to have my tea. And so therefore if something happens and I can't have my tea, then I'm unhappy. So that's that's the delusion that I am a separate entity in this world of other separate entities and it's my interaction of this, this real thing with those real things is going to determine whether or not I'm happy. And that's what we need to overcome. So we just recognize that everything is this, in this dynamic process of change. At the very least, we might not be quite so disappointed when the cup breaks. And that would be a big step forward. Because a lot of our life is experiencing the dissatisfaction and happiness that comes from not getting what we want or, or losing what we already have and so on and so forth. If we just if we just realized that everything's constantly changing and didn't get attached to things, didn't get attached to our favorite cup, didn't get attached to having a cup of tea right now, and things like that, then that would reduce somewhat our suffering. But there's a deeper point here, which is that the entire view of a world consisting of things is uh, is at odds with reality. And so there's, there's where our risk comes. As long as we insist on understanding reality to be in a way that it isn't, sooner or later we're going to bump up against the truth and we're not going to be happy with the result. Okay? That's, that's what I was saying. Now, okay, so impermanence, radical impermanence. Less radical impermanence is everything arises and passes away. Therefore, don't cling to things, because uh, otherwise, sooner or later, you're going to lose what you're clinging to, and then you'll be unhappy. So, the more radical is recognizing there aren't anything. There's just change. Everything's constantly changing. Now, just to clarify, this doesn't mean that nothing exists. This means that there's that, that what does exist, that the nature of reality, is better described as process than as as things. After all, even when you drop this cup, it can become decorative pieces of ceramic in your flower pot. And so, okay, so we're so all these, all things don't exist, and we don't say that nothing exists. No self. This is the denial that there is an individual essence to a person, a true self, or atta, or atman. Now, we looked, we, we looked at the five aggregates a little while ago this morning, and you can see that those are all rising and falling, rising and passing away. None of them last. 
There's many, many, many of them. And we didn't find in that anything that we could say, okay, that's me, that's permanent, that's, that's, that's always there. So we've already approached this question of no self and looking at that. What we are is five aggregates, uh, constantly changing complex of mental and physical phenomena. That part is real. That some individual essence, that's not. The kind of self that we imagine ourselves to be is, is that there is, it, it's single, singular, there's only one, right? Or, I don't know, do any of you feel like you are multiple selves? <laughs> Days. Well, that's good. If you, because in fact, if you examine closely, you find there are multiple selves. You're not the same person now that you were yesterday, and you won't be the same person tomorrow. But not only that, you have different personas that you put on and take off, like uh, you know, like costumes, like masks, uh, like like getting dressed. You have, you have, you, you don't even have a personality. You've got a collection of personalities that you wear at different occasions. Do you not? Yes. <coughs> How'd you know that? <laughs> the lucky cat. <laughs> and we're constantly changing. So we're not single. We're not an enduring entity. The, the part that we're actually most attached to is the idea that we are separate, is we really feel separate, separateness. And when you think about it, that that is the essence of self. Uh, you can adapt to the idea that you are, that there are multiple versions of you, and you can say, yeah, but I am my closet full of personalities. You can adapt to the idea that you're changing, that some parts get lost and new parts replace them. As a matter of fact, uh, that's usually good news because there's things about ourselves that we don't like that much and we'd like to be able to discard and replace with something better. So it's, it's not difficult to get used to the idea that, well, maybe I'm not one and maybe Maybe I'm not a single, enduring entity. That's all right. But what's really hard to get over the idea that you're not separate. And here we are being told that you're not separate. To be a self is to be separate. And if you are not separate, then the term self doesn't really have any meaning anymore. Does that make sense to you? That it only, yeah, there's a duality there, the real fundamental duality that self has no meaning without an other than self. That's a separate other. Yes? Sorry, this is probably really obvious, but when you say we're not separate, does, does that mean we're just, that we're connected 
with they say we're connected. With, with, yes, with everyone absolutely. in some way, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It means that we're connected. Okay. Yeah. What's the nature of the connection? Is it just the the causality or is there something more to well, it? No, there's much more to that. You see, there's different ways that we could think of being connected. You can have separate things that are linked to each other. And we could be we could somehow be separate things that are causally linked. But that's not really what we're saying here. Uh, we're saying that the whole is inherent at every part, and the part is inherent, every part is inherent in the whole. Interpenetrating. We're connected in the sense that we're interpenetrating. Now, to use an example, if you took, we perceive ourselves, and we perceive other people, and we perceive other things like this, as, as being separate entities. And that is the result of, uh, of uh, the way our sense organs work and how our mind operates on that information. If you imagine taking a, rolling up a piece of paper like this into two, and you go out and you look at the sky like this, wherever you look, you know, this is sort of like our little wireframe that we dipped in the water before. This is sort of like your sense organs, this tube. And it isolates some part of the sky. And then your mind, your mind gives that the quality of being a, a, a separate entity. So you have that piece of the sky. But the thing is, you know that no matter where you pointed your little tube, that, that there's no difference in the pieces of the sky. They are all, they're all part of the whole. And the separateness is being imposed upon them from without. So we're causally interconnected, but we're, we're also fundamentally interpenetrating. Uh, e to be causally interconnected means that anything that anything that changes in any part of the whole affects every part of the whole, right? Sort of worked through that this morning. So, where where could your mind apply a separation that was real? I mean, we can expand the boundaries of what we see as ourselves. You know, I can include, I can include my family in myself. I can include my possessions in myself. I can include, I can include our whole sangha as a part of myself. Or I could go the other way and say that, well, my arms and legs, they're disposable. There's aspects of my personality to do without those. You know, I could remove 90% of my memories and or whatever, and and I could I could redefine what's left to say, okay, this is myself. 
But are any of those boundaries any more real than the rest? Are they any more real than taking, looking at one piece of the sky through a rolled up tube and finger? That's the question. So, I believe what you say. But there is a, a difference in, in how much influence you have over each of those elements. Right? You have more influence, so there's a difference between us as being self and you as being self because you have more control over your arms than you do over us. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like looking at, at dividing the sky up by looking at it through uh, two. Parts of the sky that are closer together are going to be more mutually interactive. And and you're you are real. Your five aggregates are real. They are a they are particular convergences of causality, right? So they are they're unique. They're real. They exist. But it is but really what we're addressing here is the question is the boundary that we perceive to exist between what we call ourself and the rest of reality, is that real? Each piece of the sky you look at through the tube is in fact a unique separate piece of the sky. But is the boundary created by the tube make it real? It's still good to think in terms of cups and computers and stuff. Absolutely. Even after you have this insight, though, right? That's right. Because, you see, this is the only way the human mind can work. As a matter of fact, what the human mind does, it takes this ultimate reality, which the human mind is not capable of encompassing or grasping, and it chops it up into manageable pieces. The human mind is an instrument for dividing the world up into imaginary things. And that if you, you as a human being, could not function in the world, a Buddha cannot function in the world without the Buddha allowing his mind to divide it up into, into, into cups and computers. And, well, that would be an interesting for the Buddha's mind to do, but divide it up into things. Right? It's the only way our mind can function. Yet, right? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that that's the way it really is. Yeah. But even if, suppose, we all saw how it really was and saw that we were completely interpenetrating and not separate, still we would not lose the ability to squint and see, oh, looks like a cup right now. No, absolutely not. So, there's nothing... The Buddha there's, never there's, had trouble putting his food in his bowl. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the illusion that I'm getting from listening to this is we all wake up tomorrow enlightened and we can't find a light switch. Yeah, no, that's not how it is. <laughs> but the thing is that you, that when, you, when you're awakened, 
you realize that the, this appearance of things is just an appearance, and it's functional. It, its purpose is entirely functional. And then it makes sense for, in order to take care of your body, it makes sense to see your body uh, as a separate thing. But in terms, does it make sense to see yourself as, as a separate entity? I've been on 30-day retreats and saw the differences in perception at the end of that time. Mm -hmm. I've never been in a three-month retreat, but I've never been on a year or three-year retreat. And what happens to perception at the end of that time? Does does are do you interact with differently? Physically, differently with your environment. And I'm not sure in what in what kind of interact differently. Uh, you know, I told you the story of being on the end of a 30-day retreat, doing a slow walking and watching my foot yeah. disappear. Right? Where did it go? Did anybody else see it disappear? No. Right. <laughs> but where was it going? What was going on as I watched my toes disappear? What happens is your mind in a sense, acquires the ability to perceive things differently. But if, if you're, but it doesn't lose the ability to perceive things in the way it always has. It would not functionally work well for you to never again perceive your feet. That would be, that would create some real problem. I know, but it would be really interesting if I had a choice. Well, yeah. And what happens in the retreat is your mind gives you an opportunity to see things differently. Or the retreat gives your mind an opportunity to perceive things differently than the way it ordinarily does. And in the process, your mind comes to a new state of realization that, ah, things aren't necessarily the way I perceive them to be. That's the important part of it. Um, that's really the gift. It's, it's sort of like if you take LSD or, or some other psychoactive substance, it scrambles the way your brain works, and as a result, you have totally different perceptions. And it becomes, it becomes a powerful, spiritually illuminating experience if, as a result of the altered perception, you have the experience that, ah, I realize now that the way I experience things isn't necessarily the way they really are, but that this is the, it's dependent upon my mind. That's the important realization. And you can't, you, you, if you have an experience like that on LSD, you know that it's a really good thing when it wears off because you couldn't manage to go to work the next day and survive in the world not being able to perceive things the way that you did before. But the experience gives you insight. And, and that's really what you're talking about there. Our mind has to divide things up. The Buddha's mind still has to see the world as consisting of things. But the Buddha's mind doesn't have to believe it is really the way it appears. 
the Buddha's mind can know that this is just something his mind is doing or her mind is doing to 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 make reality manageable. So the goal is to gain some degree of control over perception and then keep most of it the way it is and just get rid of suffering, or the perception of suffering? The goal, you see, the, the, the goal is really interesting here. The goal is to have craving disappear. Okay? When craving disappears, when you just picture it this way, you wake up tomorrow and something happened during the night, and craving does in either of its forms, desire or aversion, just doesn't arise anymore. Can you picture what that would be like? Okay, well, it, it would mean that you neither like nor dislike anything enough to pursue it or avoid it. But the interesting consequence of that is that you don't have any suffering. When the craving goes away, the suffering goes away. The, the craving's just there. Maybe it's hard for you to imagine what it's like to wake up in the morning without having craving because it's always been there. Right? It's always been there all the time. Now here you are it's gone. So the question is, what was causing it? What made it go away? What caused it to be there all along? Well, what caused it to be there, What the support for it, the root of it, was this, the way that you saw things, a world of things of which you are a separate one. You're a separate entity. That's what drives the craving. And so when you no longer see things that way, that the craving no longer arises in the same way, and suffering no longer happens. That's where you're trying to get to. You experience things differently. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you don't still see a world of things, because you have to, to function. But you don't believe it. You know it for exactly what it is. It's something that this poor little mind of mine has to do in order to function. And you now, it's at this point that you have an enormous degree of control that you don't before, you don't previously have. You're not, your behavior, your thoughts are not being driven by craving. Your speech and your actions are not being driven by craving. You're not being constantly buffeted by desire for this and aversion for that. You can still do things. You can still understand things. You can still interpret the world as a world of things. And you can say this thing that's happening is a bad thing and that thing that's happening is a good thing. And we should have fewer of these bad things and more of these good things. You can still make all those decisions and do all those things. But... <laughs> You don't experience a, an inner mental pain that makes you feel like you have to go and change things. And that drives you to change things even though you don't know the best way to change things. 
Does that make sense? Does that kind of get to? Kind of. So what's sort of incredible about this for me, it seems, is that basically the Buddha sounds like anyone's in you and to divide the world into two different um, things or whatever. One is that so uh, the rest of the world is functional. It's it's, okay. it's functional if we have it, if we immune boundaries in it. That's right. Okay, but that that but immune boundaries for ourselves that doesn't work. So boundaries for the rest of the world works for us, but boundaries for ourselves doesn't. Well. It, it's really, <clears throat> it's really just all those boundaries become transparent. Mm. The, the the boundaries to ourselves are really responsible for our suffering. Right. Okay, but the but imbuing everything else with boundaries too that contributes somewhat to our suffering. Yeah. The world still it still makes makes the world somewhat unsatisfactory. Can you say a little on how the disappearance of craving does not equal apathy? Oh, well, there is an interesting thing. When you experience the disappearance of craving, even before you experience the disappearance of craving, when you have the experience that craving is greatly reduced, there is a feeling of rudderlessness. You're so used to being driven, everything you ever did was, you know, I want this and I don't want that. And so, there, there is definitely an experience of, what, why, why should I go this way rather than that way? Decision making becomes a really different thing. It's like, I don't know, who cares? <laughs> and when that happens to you, you'll get the feedback from people around you. It'll be frustrating to them. <laughs> well, you just don't care anymore. Well, well it's, it's not that, but, well, yeah, I guess I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is an initial reaction. It's a reaction, you'll, it's an, even a reaction that you'll have if you go on a long retreat and your, your tendency to craving gets hugely diminished, is you'll come out and it's sort of like, hey, Whatever, <laughs> but it wears off. Um, but but when there's a permanent change, when you begin to when when the level of craving that arises is permanently reduced, then what happens is you still have motivations, but the motivations are coming from a different place. They're not coming from from selfish desire and aversion. As a matter of fact. One of the things that becomes evident really quickly I mean, is that uh, is that you still love and care for other people. As a matter of fact, you love and care for other people even more because now you don't have your selfish needs getting in the way. And so you still got lots of motivation to do and not do things because, uh, because you care about other people. And not only that, you care about the five aggregates. You care about this body and mind. So you take care of it. So you don't need to be motivated by craving to feed yourself, to sleep when you need to, to um, put on a sweater when you get cold, you know, to come in out of the rain. You don't need craving for any of those things. 
The difference is that the less craving you have, the less, less self-centered belief that you have driving you psychologically, the less difference you see between taking care of yourself and taking care of someone else. It all becomes very much the same thing. You still have the sense enough to come in out of the rain, and you have sense enough to offer an umbrella to somebody else, especially if you think that you might, they might need it more. But yeah, there is there is an initial experience of kind of a, a rudderlessness. You're not used to... You, you, you don't have your usual thing driving you, and so you have to wait for these other things to sort of develop and strengthen and move in to, to give you direction. Yeah. Um, the three characteristics are put forth as f facts. The um, ignorance of causes craving, right. which then causes suffering. That's right. Now, impermanence and no self kind of go together, and and they're they make sense to me. But this dukkha. Yeah. Is dukkha uh, a, uh, an inherent predisposition of the mind, or in this context, or is it the same as the suffering that happens from ignorance? It, it, it's, it, from, it, it, it is an inherent predisposition of the mind, because suffering is an inherent predisposition of the mind, but it's an overcomable predisposition of the mind. So... So the impermanence and no self are are things that are kind of and that's, it's a, we just need part to realize that. Yeah. Impermanence and no self, those are things that we can know about ultimate reality. Yeah. Okay. We can't know ultimate reality, but we know about ultimate reality. We can know that ultimate reality is is impermanent. It's 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 process, it's not things, it's constantly changing. Yeah. And we can know that there is there is no self in reality. And so even the illusion that I am a separate self is just as much an illusion as that anything else is is, is a separate enduring entity. Mm -hmm. So th those are facts. The third fact of, uh, let's go ahead and move, jump ahead to... Because it doesn't look like Dukkha reappears. Yeah. Oh, there this, it is. Dissatisfaction. There is Dukkha. Dissatisfaction. Okay, it, it is a fact that human nature being what it is, we're going to experience suffering, dissatisfaction. Because ultimate reality, from the point of view of a human mind, is unsatisfactory. The human mind finds satisfaction in stability and in getting what it wants and avoiding what it doesn't want. And those are impossible. So the nature of the human mind is such that the, na the nature of the human mind and the nature of ultimate reality are such that dukkha is inevitable. Okay? Right. Okay. But what that doesn't mean is that, is that it can't be changed. We do have an, an inherent nature, meaning inherent means we're born with it. Born with it, but we're also born with the inherent capacity to change our nature 
to eliminate the ignorance, to eliminate the craving, and thereby become free from dukkha. So there is a footnote in the handout about dukkha. It's different. Dukkha is a very broad general term. Okay, on bottom of page 11. Dukkha has a broad range of meaning. Okay. In talking about the truth of suffering. Oh, no, there's a big one out there on the table. He said, oh. Yeah. That, um, in talking the truth about suffering, we distinguish dukkha, what we call pain, which is physical origin, and dukkha, which we identified as mental suffering. And we said, one is inevitable and the other is optional. And so those could be called dukkha, du- pain is dukkha, dukkha. <laughs> it's just, uh, could translate from the Pali into plain old dukkha. Okay. Plain old, it hurts. And dominasa dukkha, which is the suffering, that's the amplification of the suffering that is mental in origin. What we're talking about here is our dukkha that is due to the fact that everything is changing. Mm-hmm. So that means, okay, that means that the human mind in its inherent nature is going to want to cling to things rather than accept them as constantly changing. And so that is going to be unsatisfactory. And the other is that life is uh, is empty of the possibility that we can be made happy by the things that happen to us. That is just not possible. The most that we can do is made momentarily happy by things that happen to us. But uh, neither we nor the things that we think will make us happy really have the nature that our mind attributes to them. And so that's the other, that's, that's the kind of uh, dukkha, sankara dukkha, that comes from the fact that, that ultimate reality is this way, and the human mind in its inherent nature is this way, and the two are uh, the two add up to dukkha. So as long as the human mind stays in its one nature, ultimate nature, the nature of ultimate reality is not going to change. As long as the, as the uh, human mind stays in its inherent nature and does not change, you are going to suffer. There is just that is a fact. That's a, that's just as much a fact as impermanence and no self. So, in a sense, we could say that that third fact, it's a conditional fact. And if it wasn't a conditional fact, then the Buddha would have given up and said, okay, this is suffering, and there is no end to suffering, so forget it, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'll go home. Yeah, I'll go home. Go home, yeah. Go to the bar. <laughs> Um, so let's go back to no self. Uh, do we need to say any more about no self? Do you want to talk about emptiness a little bit? Can yeah. you just say a little bit more about um, the nature of uniqueness? The nature of? Uniqueness. Uniqueness. Yes. Because it relates to no self. Yeah. Well, see, the important some people think, when you say, okay, no self, 
that must mean that I'm not real. No, you are real, but you are not a separate self the way you think you are. Right? And one of the things, what is it that we're attached to? We're not really attached to our separateness. Our separateness is just, it's the bane of our life. But it's hard for us to distinguish between, uh, between separateness and the other things that are important to us. And uniqueness is something we appreciate. We appreciate our own uniqueness. We appreciate the uniqueness of other people. You know, uh, we love each other. You know, and we love each other because of our uniqueness. You know, wow, you're this wonderful, special person. You know, and I don't want somebody to come along saying that negating that, that you're, you're not real, that this thing that I'm experiencing is meaningless. And so, therefore, take your no separate selfness and get out of here, because I don't want to lose that. But I'm, what I'm telling you is it doesn't cost you that. You are still absolutely, totally unique. Think of it this way. You, you are a unique way, a, a, a unique viewpoint of reality, of the world, okay? And there, there's no other place in the wholeness of reality that provides the same perspective. And every single one of us is unique in that way. And real. We are real, and we are unique, but we are not separate selves. That's that's what it's coming down to. So it's the mind that wants to, to correlate those two things. The mind and wants to... the experience of, of the unique vantage point, the yeah. unique, unique expression of right. create a constellation of experiences right. as... Yeah. That also makes them separate. So In if you can see yourself as a unique aspect of reality and everyone else around you as an equally unique aspect of reality, then you don't need to see yourself as separate, and you don't need to see everyone else as separate. You, you, you've satisfied that intuitive need. You know that there is something special there, intuitively, that you don't want to give up, and that is important, and it shouldn't be trashed. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and that's what the uniqueness is, the specialness. But we don't need these artificial boundaries to support that. As a matter of fact, if you think of yourself as a unique vantage point, it could be like a dimensionless point. Okay? And your life history and your body and your personality and all these other things, they're all part of what, what the universe looks like from this unique dimensionless point. Right? You don't have to answer this because it's out there. Huh? But I really, then why ask it? I really want to know. <laughs> okay. If you, I mean, if, if you, you really got, to, if you could just do this in ten words or less, we'd both be pleased. Okay. Um, I want to know if reality is conserved. If reality is conserved, like some law of physics, like momentum, I want to know if you extinguish a species, is 
all the rest made less. If you keep this up until we have a nice mass extinction and then 99% of life on Earth is wiped out, and it grows back after like 66 billion years. But for that interim, is, is reality made less, or is it just made other? Does it change? I mean, I want to know if... It's just made. It's made other, but also, it's only from our temporal point of view that what is gone is, is no longer exists, because it, it, yeah. But so it's so so. There's not less reality if I'm not around to appreciate it. That's right. Okay. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. That was less than ten words. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, but but say it again because I didn't get it. <laughs> you can say that nine more times. <laughs> Well, first of all, <clears throat> the, the totality of this evolving process that is ultimate reality, it cannot be diminished by any of the changes that take place within it. They're only changes, and every part of it is changing constantly. So it, it changes, but it's not diminished. So as far as conservation, it's there. But the other thing, too, is... Remember, we're limited to seeing things from, you know, uh, we travel through time like a point traveling along a line. And it seems to us that, you know, uh, well, uh, you, you, you extinguished a whole species, we'll just extinguish one person. When a person dies, okay, they're gone. But actually they're not. Their entire life is still there. And not only that, it's still accessible. How else could somebody experience a past life? And it's only a past life. The thing is that you only call it experiencing a past life if the person that those events belong to has already ceased to exist from the point of view of the present. If that person still exists in the present, you don't call it seeing a past life. You call it knowing the mind of another. But the fact that people have the experience of seeing past lives is an illustration of the fact that they don't cease to exist just because the body goes away. And not only that, what happened to the pieces of the body? They just got redistributed and reused, right? If we all live in the same little village our whole lives, Somebody could come along and they would find that, that each of our bodies is made up of a huge proportion of atoms and molecules that belong to our neighbor's bodies. And of course the dogs and cats and chickens and everything else, right? But in a little, in a little piece of territory, our little hypothetical village here, all the same stuff keeps getting recycled over and over again. As a matter of fact, all of us that live together in this, we all, you, know, you you've got, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions of atoms and molecules in your body that were once part of mine. We all do. And the more proximity we have, the more pieces that we share. 
So when a particular body, particular form and structure ceases to exist, the things that made it up don't cease to exist. The same thing's true of the mind. When, when the body and mind as an as a individual person cease to exist, it doesn't mean that all the mental components cease to exist. But they get moved around, they get redistributed. You do get reborn. You just don't get reborn as a separate self. All the good you do, all the good karma that you make for yourself, all the wisdom that you acquire in your life, it doesn't disappear when you die. It continues on. If you, uh, if you become awakened in one lifetime, does that wisdom, that, that destroying of delusion, does it disappear? No, it doesn't. But do you, you, this personal individual, especially if you're awakened, a personal individual no longer sees himself as separate, <laughs> does that come into being as another being that sees himself as separate? No, that doesn't. But the wisdom, certainly, that goes on. The wisdom only goes on if other people know about it. What's that? The wisdom only goes on if other people know about it. If somebody becomes wise in the Himalayas, and I said by themselves and they die, that wisdom, you think no. that wisdom goes on too? That, that goes on too. Well, the thing is, if there's interaction with other people, it goes on even more than it does. Okay. Okay. Otherwise, how would it go on? It, well, it, it goes on, and it, back to this conservation of reality. It doesn't. Nothing's destroyed. Okay. We aren't separate. We aren't separate. Mm -hmm. We are not separate. Nothing's destroyed. Are you saying that consciousness has memory? What's that? Consciousness has memory. Uh, consciousness doesn't have memories, but mem but no memories no. memories can become conscious. Yes, right. They become conscious out of memories. Okay. That, that's what recollecting a past life is. That's right. that is is you experience consciousness of. Somebody else's memories. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you think about it. You want to go, oh, think about the fact that every moment of your conscious existence is there forever. And it's, it's there for anybody to see that ever knows how to look. <laughs> Well, and I thought there was a problem with privacy on the internet. Yeah, right. oh. yeah, forget that thing on the internet that saves every everything that ever went on a website, so it's impossible to delete. Well, this is even worse than that. We 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 are not separate. It's, it's a whole. I mean, didn't we already cover that? And every every. All of the causes and conditions are inherent within every effect. Okay. And absolutely everything is causes and conditions for absolutely everything else. Yeah. So how is wisdom about human life useful to everything else? 
then. If, if someone comes up with something, no person, nothing alive ever learns about it, and they die, and it gets passed on, what, what good does that do the world? Well, it, it won't do any good until, until the world comes to a place where it applies. But in the meantime, yeah, it won't apply. How, how is it even passed on? It, okay, instead of thinking of it as passed on, because if it's passed on, then there's got to be some place, some, something that's the carrier of it, some place that it resides. It just is. It is, and it's always there. Once it comes into being, it's there. Um, and once it's there, it's accessible. Whether or not it will be accessed, access depends on causes and conditions. Causes and conditions are going to bring about a certain confluence where it is accessed. And, but if it's accessed before it has before it has any relevance, then it, it doesn't do any good. But if it's accessed when it does have relevance, it does do good. Actually, if you you see, we're, we're, we who are, from our human point of view, living contemporaneously in this world, we're obviously more closely connected in this sense of oneness than we are with people who lived a thousand, ten thousand years ago. But we're connected to them as well. But we're more connected to each other. And there is evidence of that. Many different instances that show that when a particular wisdom, piece of wisdom gets acquired by one person at one place, it tends to get acquired by other people in other places really quickly afterwards. It doesn't, you could say, okay, well how does it get there? What carries it? And you'd be baffled. And the same, you know, so don't look for the carrier. It's there and it's accessible. We're all connected. It doesn't need to be carried. The hundredth monkey thing, are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Are you? Is that a bunch of monkeys writing Shakespeare? Or? No. <laughs> <laughs> Although that would be interesting. That is, uh, that is a, an, an almost a, apocryphal now story, but it illustrates, it, it's an illustration of something that's been observed many times in many places. According to the story, there were, uh, uh, there were two colonies of monkeys that were on, I believe it was a small Japanese island that was being used to conduct certain kinds of, of research studies. Uh, yeah. And they intentionally separated these two populations of monkeys. It was part of the research that they were doing. And they would toss the food for the monkeys out on the beach, and of course they'd get sand on it. And one day, after a long time, one of the monkeys realized that all he had to do was go over to the water and wash the sand off, and it was much easier to eat. And of course, very quickly, all the other monkeys saw this and said, wow, that's a good idea. And they all started washing the sand off their food before they ate it. But this other population on the other side of the island that had been intentionally isolated and there was no communication between them and they didn't get to see this happening. They started doing the same thing too. So that, that's the hundredth monkey phenomenon. And if you're, if you're interested in pursuing that, that further, uh, there's a person named Rupert Sheldrake 
who's elaborated this phenomena into a whole idea of, of uh, morphogenetic fields. That there, uh, he posits the existence of fields that uh, that once a once a morphogenetic field is is established, then it's much easier for something else to come into existence that uh, follows the same pattern. And I don't know that I agree with Rupert Sheldrake's theories at all, but he's done a good job of collating a lot of information <laughs> in support of his ideas. So if you wanted to pursue that further, that would be one way you could follow. So the events, basically, that seem like they're independent are oftentimes not. Because this Monkey Island thing, basically, those are not those two were not independent events. Otherwise, the second one would not have learned to hit as quickly as they did. That's, That's right. right. Exactly. And, and I'll share something personal with you. How do I know all of this stuff? <laughs> That's probably what a lot of people think. <laughs> but that's not untrue. <laughs> I, I do see a library. Yeah. <laughs> reading a lot has helped me be open to and understand a lot of it. But a lot of this stuff. I'm tapping into the wisdom of a whole lot of other people who have realized in the past these things. And it's and you know, I'm I'm the beneficiary of their realization of these things. Okay, come on. So we shouldn't get hung up on mechanism, not understanding the mechanism of some things. No, we don't need to get hung up on the mechanism of it. Probably window uh, up on the menu right side. Yeah, um, just something. Hmm. It's like it closed the. Uh, File recent presentations. I just open recent. <laughs> there we go. We're getting there. This is fun, even if it's not efficient. What <laughs> <laughs> if the second island of monkeys could learn PowerPoint more quickly? <laughs> hey, is the computer going to sleep? Is that what's happening? Yeah. I, I think that's what happened last time. Because he's not doing anything for long enough that. that it's going to sleep? Yeah. Sunday, how about? Wait. Come on, so there's there are there's there are glass blowing techniques that that um, we don't know how the ancients made the glass. Okay, you we, the glasses the glass objects exist, but we don't know how they did it. Uh, and the only way that it can be reproduced is with modern materials. Mm -hmm. And you go, how in the world did they ever contain or uh, form blah 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 blah? You still don't know how. What happened to that wisdom? It's still there. And if somebody set out seriously to reproduce those pieces of objects using the methods and materials of, of that time, they might discover some missing methods and materials in the process, but yeah, they'll be able to access, access that. Without having to go through the same trial and error that the original. Well, that's what I, I you know. 
it could be, it, they could rediscover it totally independently, but what I'm suggesting to you, what I believe, based on my experience, is that more likely they won't have to. More likely it, it'll be that hundredth monkey thing, that they'll find the solution much more quickly than the first guy did. For that matter, th those original techniques, they might have evolved over many generations of glass blowers, but I'll bet you one guy that devoted himself to it and could tap into that information and have the answer in you know, a much shorter period of time. Does this happen in meditation? Yes, it happens in meditation. Wait, 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 wait. what's the it here? The realization of uh, wisdom well, I, I thought you meant does it doesn't happen in terms of meditation as a technique, like glass blowing technique. Yeah, if you sit down to meditate and you you understand the result that you want to achieve, but you don't understand quite understand how to get there, the fact that other people have achieved that result is going to make it much easier for you to. And as a matter of fact, if you sit in the same room with them, it gets easier still. So I guess uh, this is exciting to me because, or from a universal sort of, or a universal time-space perspective, then because it's an accelerating amount of wisdom. Exactly. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. That's what's so amazing about that this. Really uh, cool. about, you know, th this universe that seems to you know come into existence in, in a big, fiery, massive electromagnetic radiation that condensed into subatomic particles and atoms and molecules and suns and, and, and planets and, and living organisms and us and who knows how many other kinds of us there are in the universe. It's, wow, this whole thing is such an incredible trip. We look at the history of the universe and you say, ooh. <laughs> and then it makes you really glad to know that you're going to be around the CDM too. <laughs> well, the the you that you think you are, it stops. It does its thing, and when the causes and conditions cease to exist, you know, it ceases ceases to exist. But. It doesn't cease to exist. Everything that's happened up to that point, it's still there. And all the pieces continue on, just in a new form. They come together in a new form, and they continue the whole process. And the process as a whole continues its evolution. That's why all this wisdom, it continues on. And yet apparently humans stay as stubborn and butt-headed as ever. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, I, I'm not worried if we eliminate ourselves as a species. I hope we don't. But if we do, it's still all the wisdom we've acquired, and, and even that wisdom that we might acquire as a result of making that hugely fatal mistake, it will continue to exist. And when physical and biological causality produce our successor, our successor is going to do a better job because it gets to draw upon both what we learned and, and, and uh, what we screwed up on.
one of the most interesting science fiction books I read was a four billion year history of humanity and how it goes up thousands of years of the golden age and then a meteorite strike and starts all over again and just plague and, and prosperity and for for until the human body became ethereal. Yeah. Well I, I think that's that does describe the the future history of, of sentience in the universe. Not necessarily in the form of human beings. Because on this planet, species don't last that long. A few million years, species come and go. You know, it would be silly for us to think that this particular species is going to have a four billion year run. I mean, if we, if we make it through the we make it through the next 15 years, we'll be doing good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but, but sentient beings in the universe, you know? We were dinosaurs once. We were dinosaurs. So do you think that certain people uh, propagate wisdom more effectively than others? Which kind of people? Do you think certain people <laughs> propagate wisdom more effectively than others? Certain people? Yeah. Um, or do you think everybody's basically equal in that? Well, certain people, I mean, the obvious thing is that certain people definitely acquire a lot more wisdom than others. When you say, so I was going to get back to the question last night I asked about purpose. Yeah. So if, if, if you, uh, this accelerated wisdom thing, if you think, if one could think that one could um, propagate the, the universal wisdom more rapidly, by being by doing this kind of activity, etc., etc., then that's that's a good purpose. That's pretty darn good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. And and everyone who understands this, I think, is bound to want to want to acquire this wisdom and propagate it. As a matter of fact, the more deeply you understand this, the more you are going to become totally. It's going. This is going to become your life. Understanding <laughs> this is going to be. Only thing that matters to you, and once you've understood it to a certain level, passing it on to as many people as you can is going to be the most important thing you can possibly do. I guarantee you that's how it evolves. So, yes. I think maybe I'm a chapter ahead here, but in that case, if there is this endurance, whether we talk about it as a a morphologic field or an egregore. How then, Buddha is said to have gone beyond. He's out of the game. He, there isn't, he, he like, he's extinguished. That's, that's how I thought I understood it. And, and so, where'd he go? Because I'd sure like to tap into that, but he's not here for it. And then, if he is extinguished, then how can his creation create the, the, time? This whole thing about what happens to the Buddha is it's Buddhist theology. Check. Buddha became Buddhism became religion and in the different religions they all did their theology thing. And, you know. Okay. Right. But the Buddha, he was asked, he says, what happens to the Buddha when he dies? And he says, don't ask. <laughs> he refused to answer that question. So because he didn't know, there hadn't been a Buddha before him that died, so there was no knowledge. Well, 
there, uh, according to the myths and legends, there were other Buddhas before him. Oh. Uh, but that wasn't his point. Is that the whole question is kind of you're thinking you're applying ordinary thinking of Buddha as a separate mm. person to uh, that's where the question is coming from. And so he he wasn't going to answer a question that was based on such fallacious thinking. Mm-hmm. So he pulls an Obi-Wan and we don't ask him. But, in, in a, but he, he, said don't, he said don't ask, and I'm saying don't believe what these, uh, these theological speculators would say about that. But in fact, that's really what we are talking about when we're talking about what happens to wisdom. You know, the wisdom. The wisdom of the Buddha, a Buddha, all Buddhas, the wisdom doesn't cease to exist. Buddha did say that. Buddha was asked by people who believed in reincarnation uh, that if there was no self, then what is it that is reincarnated? And he chose not to say, well, there's no reincarnation. He, he chose to answer the basic question, what they were really asking. They weren't asking, is there reincarnation or not? They were asking, what, what happens to the wisdom, the ignorance? What, what happens to everything that a person accumulates and, and does in a lifetime? And his answer, what is passed on, are, is your karma. And tomorrow we'll get into karma, what karma is, and that will become clearer. But he says... What, go, what is passed on is the karma. You are not, you do not continue, but the karma that you have created is what continues. And he didn't say that your karma continues all in one lump to one particular person who gets your karma all in a package. Nothing, nothing more and nothing less. He never said that either. He just simply said, what continues with the passing of a person is his karma. The karmic consequence. Actually, what he says is, it's the uh, is is the uh, karmic consequences of a person's life. That is what continues on. So when I get this idea of passing on karma, uh, my very spatial mind says you know, it's probably not this linear thing that you divide into pieces and like pass on. It's probably this really. I mean, if I want to use spatial analogies, like some very very complicated, like mm-hmm. I don't know infinitely dimensional space of relationships that, um, I don't know, I'm just trying to, um, I guess, bring some, uh, I want to get some depth into, oh, I guess we'll cover that tomorrow, maybe I should reserve that question, actually. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. reserve it for tomorrow. That's fine. Uh, we should probably give people a break here, <laughs> and then we come back and continue this. So let's take, let's take a 15-minute break.